that, let's ask the Lord's blessing upon the reading and the preaching and the reception of that word in faith by the Spirit. Let's pray. Our great God and Heavenly Father, we come again at this point, <clears throat> Lord, desiring to hear from you, from your word, as it is preserved and handed down throughout the generations, Lord. We give you praise for this, your word. We do pray that the meditations of our heart will be pleasing to you. Uh, Heavenly Father, and we pray that you would have your way with us and that you would indeed uh, instruct us, challenge us, refresh us by this word. And we pray, Lord, that as we hear it read and preached, that we would hear the voice of Jesus, our Savior. Lord, we confess that we do not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from your mouth. And so we ask, Father, give us a great appetite for this, your word, that it may have its effect as you intend that it may nourish our souls this morning in ways of eternal life and in sanctification, all to your glory. We ask all of this through the bread of heaven, Jesus Christ, and all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Turn your hymnals now, if you would, I'm sorry, your Bibles now to John chapter 19. John 19, <clears throat> I'll begin reading at verse 30. John 19, starting at verse 30 to the end of the chapter. Once more, please give your full attention. This is the Word of God. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Since it was the day of preparation, and so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for the Sabbath was a high day, the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the other who had been crucified with him, that is Jesus. But when they came to Jesus and saw that, his, that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear and at once there came out blood and water. He who saw it has borne witness. His testimony is true, and he knows that he is telling the truth, that you may also believe. For these things took place that the scriptures might be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. And again, another scripture says, they will look on him whom they have pierced. And after these things, Joseph, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus, and Pilate gave him permission. So he came and took away his body. Nicodemus also, who earlier had come to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. So they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen cloths with the spices, as is the custom of the Jews. Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden a new tomb in which no one had, been, had yet been laid. So because of the Jews, the Jewish day of preparation, and since the tomb was close at hand, they laid Jesus there. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen. You may be seated. This morning we continue in detail to look at Jesus and his work of accomplishing redemption. 
<clears throat> Last week we looked at uh, that which we confess, he was crucified, died, and buried. And we're going to look at what, that, what it means when we confess next that Jesus descended into hell. <clears throat> I'll briefly discuss what that means. And then look at the great importance of the real, full, and powerful death of the Lord Jesus Christ from our text in John's Gospel, John 19. Uh, first a word about that phrase in the creed, though. <clears throat> Probably the most contested and controversial um, clause in the creed, uh, and really because it's misunderstood, um, it's not actually controversial, but usually when I'm asked about the Apostles' Creed and someone asks questions about the creed, uh, it's usually about, first, what does it mean that we confess that we believe in the Holy Catholic Church, right? That's, uh, that's a big um, question that people ask. Of course, Catholic just means universal. Um, but then second is about that clause that says he descended into hell. Jesus descended into hell. The creed, of course, was not written by the apostles, but it's a summary. It summarizes the teaching of the apostles. Um, and so what is meant by that phrase? Uh, well, if we look at the confessions of the church, those things that the church has confessed over the years, <clears throat> Uh, we can learn what, that, what it means and how we have understood that. Um, so first, let's, I'm going to look at um, our standard, our larger catechism, um, and then uh, I'll read what the older confession um, of the Reformed tradition of the Continental Reformed um, folks uh, said about <clears throat> this clause and how they explain it. And then we'll look at our text and unfold what we see there. Um, our larger catechism, question 50, answers the question regarding Christ's humiliation. It says, Christ's humiliation after his death consisted in his being buried and continuing in the state of the dead and under the power of death till the third day. Right, so that's how our confession states. It's, uh, it's referring to his being buried and continuing in the state of the dead uh, and under the power of death until that third day when he is raised again. Um, and the answer goes on, which has been expressed in these words, he descended into hell. If we look at the earlier creed, um, the Heidelberg Catechism, um, which both of these are in the back of our Psalter hymnal, uh, question 44 asks, what does the creed, why does the creed add, he descended to hell? And the answer is this, <clears throat> uh, very pastoral and warm and uh, wonderfully uh, subjective as it was in regard to the question, the answer is to assure me during attacks of deepest dread and temptation that Christ my Lord, by suffering unspeakable anguish and pain and terror of soul on the cross, but also earlier, right again, to assure me during the attacks that he has delivered me from the hellish, me from hellish anguish and torment, right? That's what it says. To assure me during the attacks of deepest dread and temptation that Christ my Lord, by suffering unspeakable anguish and pain and terror of soul on the cross, has delivered me from hellish anguish and torment. And then we see from our text in John 19, uh, to which we turn now, um, notice that just prior to the section heading that you see in verse 31, verse 30, we see uh, that section ending with Jesus, victorious over death by his own dying, right? Victorious over death by his own dying. Again, it is finished. 
And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Right? It is finished. And we have a glimpse into that slice of time between Jesus' death and his resurrection. Right? From Friday afternoon to early Sunday morning. <clears throat> and in this passage, we see two movements given here by John. Two focus, focuses that he gives. The first is in verses 37, 31 to 37. Um, we see Jesus' lifeless body on the cross. And then second, we see his, uh, his body in the tomb. Right? So on the cross and then in the tomb, those two movements that John tracks for us. Right? First, Jesus on the cross. There is a sense when we read this of rushing and urgency. Um, when we read through this section, in verse 1, we are told why the, there is this hurry. Right? It was the day of preparation, the day before the Sabbath. The Jewish Sabbath began at sundown. We know from Mark's gospel that uh, Jesus died at 3 o'clock in the afternoon. It's only a few hours before the Sabbath begins. Right? And that's a problem because Jesus must be off the cross before sundown. He must be off the cross. Right? Work is prohibited on the Sabbath. Right? We all know this well. Very stringent right, at the time of the Jews historically throughout and even to this day. Um, and so taking the body of Jesus down from the cross would be working, would seen as an act of work. But also we see a reference to this in the Old Testament. The Old Testament speaks directly to this in Deuteronomy 21. <clears throat> Deuteronomy 21, uh, verses 22 and 23 say this. <clears throat> And if a man has committed a crime punishable by death, and he is put to death, and you hang him on a tree, his body shall not remain all night on the tree, but you shall bury him the same day, for a hanged man is cursed by God. You shall not defile your land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance. Right? And in addition to this, the Jews can't just take the body. <clears throat> the Romans were the ones in charge. They're the ones who crucified Jesus. And so the Jews would need the Romans' uh, permission if they were to do so. And so what do they do? We read that they go and they ask Pilate that the legs of Jesus and the two men crucified with him be broken. And at first glance, upon first reading this, if you didn't know, this seems like an odd request, right? They're already being crucified. They're already being put to death and suffering and will perish. Why would they request that the legs be broken? Um, and the simple, simple answer is to speed up the process of their death, uh, the three men. Right? People who were crucified died very slowly, in an agonizing manner. And as they fought to stay alive, they fought for their lives, they would prop themselves up, themselves up on their legs to grasp a, a, a breath of air. Right? Their legs, their feet being on a board or being nailed to the wood, they would prop themselves up to take that breath. <clears throat> Once their legs are broken, they can't do that anymore. They couldn't do that, and it was simply a matter of time, hastened by this, that they would asphyxiate, they would suffocate. And so we read in verse 32 and 33, the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the other who had been crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. He was already dead, John says. And but to ensure that this was the case, what happens? The soldier takes his spear and he pierces the side of Jesus. And it says immediately there came out blood and water, the flow of blood and water. And then we move to verses 38 to 42. 
right? We've gone from the cross, and now Jesus' body has just moved from the cross into the tomb. We're introduced to these two men, Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus. Uh, Joseph is a disciple of Jesus, we read, but in secret, because he, what, feared the Jews. He feared the Jews. Matthew tells us that he was a man of wealth, a man of wealth. Mark tells us that he was waiting for the kingdom of God. Luke tells us that he was a good and a righteous man and a member of the Sanhedrin, right, that Jewish council that sentenced Jesus to die. But Joseph, we read, did not consent of that decision. He did not uh, consent. And then the other man uh, we know, uh, Nicodemus, of course, he's the man who we read about in John 3, who comes uh, to Christ, and it says there in John 3, now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night. And so the common practice, the bodies that were crucified, was to place them in a mass grave. But that's not what happened with Jesus. These two men, Joseph and Nicodemus, in a courageous move, they go to Pilate and they ask for the body of Jesus. And Pilate grants their request. And the text tells us that Nicodemus comes, and he comes how? He comes with this massive amount of myrrh and alloys, 75 pounds. And that would, of course, been very extremely expensive at that time, that volume of aloe and myrrh. And this emphasizes what? It says something of the devotion that he had for Jesus, Nicodemus. And then he and Joseph prepare Jesus' body, wrapping it in uh, linen and spices, according to the burial custom of the Jews, we read. And they lay it in a new tomb in a garden near where he was crucified. And notice what's going on here, what John is doing. Right? Notice we are, what we are to see here about Jesus, this one who came into the world to save sinners and to give them life. Right? See how John is taking care in tracking the movements of the body of Jesus from the cross to the tomb. And it's not just tracking historic, the historic narrative of what happened, but God, through John, wants for you to understand the significance of what's going on here. John is pressing in for us his eyewitness testimony of what happened after Jesus died, of the importance of Jesus' death. And we see this first by John in the certainty of Jesus' death, and then second, in the consequences of Jesus' death. Right? The certainty of his death and then the consequences of his death. Right? John proposes for us, and he, there's a, a deliberate nature, is for us to know the veracity, for his reader to know the truth that Jesus died on the cross. And we know this. We've looked at 1 Corinthians 15. I'm sure you've read 1 Corinthians 15, um, where Paul speaks of the certainty of Jesus' death and that uh, his, the certainty of his death is central to the Christian faith, right? Central to the Christian faith, right? <clears throat> and, and how John here clearly makes that certain, the certainty of Jesus' death. Now, that might seem like a no-brainer at first, right? But it's a point that John needed to make, and he emphasizes. Matthew tells us that in his gospel that there was a conspiracy of Jewish leaders, a conspiracy of the leaders of the Jews, and they bribed the Roman soldiers to tell the people, Matthew says, Matthew 28, and when they had assembled with the elders and taken counsel, they gave 
a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers and said to them, tell the people that his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were sleeping. And then it goes on. So they took the money and did as they were directed. And this story has been spread among the Jews to this day. Right? Jesus didn't die. They stole his body from the grave and they made this whole thing up about uh, resurrection. And John layers in for us, layers that Jesus, the Son of God, took our nature and lived and died in that nature. And John shows us in verse 33 this very thing when he says about the Romans, they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead. Already dead. And then in verse 34, emphatically again, they pierced his side and out flows blood and water to assure that he was dead. And so this is proof that he was dead. They saw that he was dead and then they pierce him with the spear. In verse 35, it says this, very importantly. He who saw it has borne witness. His testimony is true, and he knows that he is telling the truth that you also may believe. Right? And so John is saying what? I saw these things. I saw them. And then he gives us more witnesses in uh, Nicodemus and in Joseph who ask Pilate, they're given the dead body, and they take and prepare that body, and they place it in the tomb, that dead body. And over and over and over again, John shows and he says that Jesus Christ died on that cross. And again, why is that so important? Why is it so important that he died on the cross? It's surely something that was denied in Jesus' day. Even at the front end of this, they went and they, they pay them to tell this story. It was denied in John's day. It's surely denied in our day as well. The death of Christ. Other false world religions certainly deny it. Modern views of skeptics and hostiles deny it. Many believe that conspiracy of the Jewish uh, council so long ago that we read about in Matthew that we just heard. Right? There's, of course, this old famous story um, of skeptics that Jesus didn't really die on the cross. He just passed out from exhaustion, and then he fainted, and then he's revived again as he's placed into the tomb, and then out he comes uh, being, being woken up by this cool tomb after he's rested um, and, and, and comes back, right? And this, of course, is silly and nonsensical and demonic, really. It's, a, it's an affront to God's word and what he te- testifies to us in his word. John emphasizes, don't believe those denials. Don't believe those things for a minute. I was there. I saw the body, the dead body of Jesus on the cross with the spear in his side. I saw the Romans stab him to their satisfaction, right? That he was dead. He died, John tells us. And he tells us why he tells us in verse 35. The reason that he says this. He says, this is true, in verse 35. Then he says, that you also may believe. That's why he's telling. This, this, this is why he's giving this to us. That you also may believe. That you may believe in the save, save, Savior who died for sinners that they would have life and forgiveness. The gospel is the announcement of good news that Jesus died for our sins according to the scriptures. He was buried, he was raised from the dead, and seen by many witnesses. Read, John, read 1 Corinthians 15, maybe uh, this Lord's Day afternoon, as you um, are keeping, keeping the Lord's Day and you're 
seeking to rest and give glory to God and meditate on what 1 Corinthians 15 tells us about these things. Again and again, according to the scriptures, according to the scriptures, the witnesses. And Paul says there that if this is true and you've trusted in Jesus, then your sins are forgiven. Your sins are forgiven. If that is all false, if it's all lies, then eat, drink, and be merry because you are still in your sins. Faith is grounded in what God has done. The gospel is the proclamation of good news. Why does John make such a big deal of this, the death of Christ? It's because he wants us to know it, to believe it, to be so, right? What is our comfort in knowing that Jesus died on the cross? It's, it's a comfort because we know that when Jesus died, he did so as our redeemer, right? As our redeemer. In doing so, he redeemed his people. He fully paid the penalty that we owed for our sin and rebellion. He accomplished our salvation. Again, remember the words of uh, uh, Zechariah after he's muted, when he's announced that he's going to have a son, right? At the beginning of Luke, in Luke 168, he says, he breaks his silence. The first thing he says, praise be to God for he has accomplished redemption, right? And in the work of Christ, salvation is indeed, redemption is accomplished, right? He didn't just suffer pain and agony. Not enough. He had to die. He had to drink the full cup of God's wrath against sin so that he could do away with that wrath for his people. And he did. That's the good news. He did for all those that trust him. And there remains for those who do trust him no condemnation. Romans 8 tells us no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. It's all been paid. It's been paid. And that indeed is good news. That's wonderful news. It's the best news. And so do you see what John is saying? He says, I was there. I saw his dead body on the cross. And he's saying to you, brothers and sisters, and to me, that if you trusted in Jesus as revealed by God's word, the Jesus of Scripture, then Christian, your sins are forgiven. Right? Your sins are forgiven. Good news indeed. And isn't that the very thing that we need to hear again and again and be reminded of? Lord's Day by Lord's Day, indeed, even in our prayers, in our own Bible reading, day by day by day, paid in full, no condemnation, sins are forgiven, you're reconciled to God, and you stand righteous and clothed in the righteousness of Jesus, reckoned to you and received by faith. What an incredible thing. And John says, cling to this, hold on to this, dear people. There's no doubt about it. It is certain. It's a certainty. You can have the utmost certainty of what Christ has done is yours, is yours who believe in me. And the freedom from that and the refreshing waters and cleansing issue forth in what? In new ways of life, a life that longs to delight in our Father and to father him, uh, to follow him. And for those who are in Christ, they can begin for the first time in their life to keep his law, right? to begin to be transformed and sanctified and live according to his will. And this is also comforting in, in this, in that we know that Jesus tasted death fully. He really died, and he really was raised from that death. And he led the way, and he walked the walk that we all will walk until he returns 
before we take our last breath, unless he returns before we take that last breath. And we can be confident, brothers and sisters, that because of what Christ has done, it's not, as Augustine said, our life that leads to death, but death which leads to life, which leads to life. But if you don't know the Lord Jesus Christ, if your trust is not in him as Savior, if you're not owning him as Lord, as your Lord, then understand that for you, the grave is what? It is the victory and triumph of death. It's death's mocking laugh. And the grave is a gateway to an eternity of misery and sorrow and of just punishment for your sins. You, you remain in your sins. But the good news is that that day, right, whether of your death or of Christ's return, is not yet here. Is not yet here. And so for you and for you to tell all that, all that need to hear, and that's everyone, that until that day, Christ calls every person who hears the preaching of the gospel to come to him who tasted death for sinners and to know the life and fellowship and forgiveness that is found in Christ alone. And to have the comfort and assurance that he has conquered the grave. He has conquered the sting of death, death itself. And that's an amazing thing. It's a glorious thing. And though he will call you to walk through the grave on the way to glory, unless he returns before that, we have the assurance that he has gone before us and he has removed the curse and the sting of the grave for each and every one of his people. And that is the best news. And so if you haven't come to him, come. He bids you, even now, come to him. Don't play games with him. He has made a way. Take that way and have life. Not only in the next life, but in this life. His death on the cross was certain. John makes that crystal clear. And he also shows us the consequences of that death that certainly happened, the consequences. Notice, notice again these two men, these two men, Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus. Again, these men were whom? They had power and influence and wealth. And they were captivated by Jesus and by what he claimed. But they were fearful and they were weak and they would not profess him before men. They would not take a public stand for Jesus. That's the reason we read that Nicodemus came to him by night. And why Joseph was a secret disciple. They feared the Jews. They feared those around them. They feared losing respect and status and position. Everything would be lost if they took a public stand for Christ, for Jesus, the Messiah. They would be, there would be scorn and ridicule and much loss. But as a consequence of Christ's death, we have these two men, what? They're transformed. They're transformed. And they make a very public move in requesting a pilot for the body of Jesus, the dead body of Jesus. And, and as news travels, they would ever after be labeled, what? Followers of Christ. Christians, right? Little Christs. And why is that? What, what accounts for this remarkable transformation of these two men. Like clearly something happened in their lives that has driven out that fear, that has displaced and replaced that fear, that paralyzed them from professing publicly Jesus beforehand. And we have the answer to this question in verse 34. <clears throat> right? It's there that we read of this flow of blood and water from the side, the pierced side of Christ. And John tells you this very thing that you may 
believe and know that Christ is the Son of God sent by the Father to save His people from their sins. And John points us to two scriptures in regard to this to help us understand this flow of blood and water. Right? The flow of blood, and it's, I'm sure it's, uh, this is footnoted in your Bibles, your English Bibles. In verse 36, he points you to the scripture that says, not one of his bones were broken. Not one of his bones were broken. This is, of course, from Exodus. Exodus 46, Moses is speaking about regarding the Passover. And he says, it shall be eaten in one house. You shall not take any of the flesh outside the house, and you shall not break any of its bones. Right? This Passover lamb. You shall not break any of its bones. This is the Passover law. Jesus is the Passover lamb. And now that lamb has been slain. And it's his blood that cleanses the, the dirtiest of sinners. It's that blood that flows for the remission of sins. It's the blood that frees us from the bondage of that sin and the guilt of that sin. And this had a profound, of course, and transformative effect on those men and later, of course, the disciples are turned from uh, confused cowards into bold uh, proclaimers of the gospel. And they suffered for it. And then also John gives us uh, here in this, um, he quotes uh, the, the prophet Zechariah, right? Zechariah chapter 12. And the second half of Zechariah 12.10 is what's quoted, and it says this. <clears throat> they look on me on whom they have pierced. They shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and weep bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn. And when we look at this second half of verse 10, we have to look at the context, the surrounding section of this quoted passage in Zechariah 12. In the first part of that verse, it says this, And I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy. Right? And then after this verse, it says, On that day there shall be a fountain open for the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and uncleanness. A remarkable text from Zechariah 12 and 13. Right? That... That, that, that long promise of the outpouring of the Holy Spirit has now come in Jesus Christ. The Spirit has begun to pour out with fullness now that Christ has completed His work, that He's died. And that's the difference in the lives of Joseph of Arimathea and the secret Pharisee Nicodemus who came by night. And as we close, let us reflect on this. Here we have in these two men, Joseph and Nicodemus, Men who are intrigued by Jesus. But the fear of those around them is holding them back. Holding them back. And I would imagine that this describes some of us here this morning. Sometimes in our lives. You profess Christ. You come to Sunday worship with his people and rejoice. right? Rejoice to be with God's people and God's house on his day. But then we go back into the world. You go back into the world. Back to your school. Back to your work. Maybe you have a hard time making an unashamed public stand for Jesus Christ for fear of those around you in the scorn and the ridicule. But we must freshly and frequently be challenged by God's word and the truth of what is true and the certainty of that truth and ask ourselves in the honesty of our own hearts before God, 
Who or what do I fear or love more than anything in the world? Who or what do I fear above all? And we know that the answer is supposed to be Jesus Christ, our Savior, our Creator, our Redeemer, our King, and our Lord. And maybe you struggle to be bold regarding this very thing as you should be. We all do. But John tells us here, this is where you can look. This is what is true. This is where you can draw your source of courage, spirit rock courage. And he points you to the pure side of Jesus and to the blood and water pouring out from the side of our Savior. <clears throat> this is why he's come, to forgive sins of sinners by keeping the law, by suffering your penalty. And he came to give the Spirit to strengthen and to equip each of his disciples, every one, to confess him and to love him and to follow him wherever he leads. And so that's the question that confronts us as we close. Brothers and sisters, do you love this one who loved the unlovely, who loved you who were unlovely, more than anything or any person in the world? Do you love him above all? That's the question. And if the answer is yes, we are to what? Take, take up our cross and follow him daily and live that life of gratitude for him, for his glory, for all of our lives on this side of the grave and on the other side in eternity. And when we do, when we do, the promise of Scripture is that you will find lasting joy and contentment and peace and satisfaction, the likes of with this, which this world can never offer. Right? Peace I give you, Jesus said. My peace, not as the world gives you. Ephesians 2 says, Jesus himself is our peace. Right? Is he your peace? It's Christ alone who is worthy of love and devotion. He is the only satiation of our souls, ultimately, truly. And when you look to him by faith, your lives are transformed. They're transformed in the moment and they're transformed ongoingly as you grow by the Spirit in Jesus. God did it in the lives of Nicodemus and Joseph. And God is doing it today. And he promises to do it for all who come to him by faith. His death, his suffering, his hellish torment was required that you would have life. You would have life, brothers and sisters. And so may we remember this ultimate sacrifice, this ultimate act of love. And may we rejoice in our substitute, Jesus, our great God and Savior. And let us ever praise him evermore. Amen. Let's pray. Our almighty and loving God, <clears throat> we do come again to you this morning with praise. We delight to give you that, our praise. We thank you for your providence in our lives. We thank you for our beloved Savior who gave his life for our sins and rose again for our justification. Oh, the magnitude and beauty of this, the weight of this, Lord. Who can comprehend, Lord, we pray. Help us in our unbelief. Increase our faith. We pray that you would continue to strengthen us and protect us. Help us to walk in Christ in this pilgrim life, this stranger life in this world that is not our own. Help us to know and believe and trust in your strength. Help us to know that you are working in us your sovereign will. 
and that you're transforming us, conforming us to the image of our Savior, Jesus Christ. We ask also, Lord, that you would continue to bless this church, place in our hearts a longing that your name be spread and to delight in your way and to live true and faithful lives. Our dear Lord, strengthen all of us, Lord, we pray, to show the love and grace that we've been shown by you in Christ and to invite people to hear, to come and hear of your mercy and your holiness and to hear the gospel and be confronted with Jesus, the one who died and was raised for the forgiveness of sins and the life of all those that would come to him, the only hope for life in this world and the next. Father, we remember as well and we ask that um, mercy on, on our presbytery, on the Great Lakes Presbytery, we pray for the upcoming meeting and the business of this meeting and the examinations and discussions and all that will take place. Lord, we thank you for your leading and direction through and in spite of our weaknesses and our flaws. We thank you for the gift of the body of Christ, Lord, that we can watch over one another, that we can be an encouragement to one another, and that we can pray for one another and provide for one another. We thank you that you are sovereign over all. Lord, we pray for those who aren't here this morning Lord, we pray for those who are sick. Protect them, Lord, uh, and strengthen them. Lord, provide for our financial needs. Provide for uh, the restoration that we need in our relationships. Lord, help us, those of us who are sick and broken, and help us to look beyond all of these things, remembering that you were not only sick and, uh, and, and uh, tormented and tortured, but you sent your son to die for us in place to taste the full taste the full cup of your wrath against sin lord that we would have life we praise you we thank you that you are the god of the resurrection of the dead and then we can indeed come before you and we ask all these things in the mighty name of our savior jesus amen